Faculty Podcast brought to you by RTS Washington, part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Red. I'm the president and professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington. I'm joined by Dr. Peter Lee, dean of students and professor of Old Testament, and Dr. Tommy Key, professor of New Testament and academic dean at RTS Washington. We have a special guest today. We are interviewing uh, Dr. Mike Kruger, my good friend and colleague from RTS Charlotte, where he is the president and the Samuel C. Patterson Professor of New Testament. And Samuel Patterson was one of the founding, one of the founders of RTS across the board, uh, RTS down in Jackson and, and, uh, and is a, a much lauded figure in our circles. Um, but Mike Kruger teaches New Testament down at Charlotte, where he's also the head of the campus, and really has become a resource for the whole of RTS uh, as an institution. Mike is a New Testament scholar who, who cut his teeth getting his bachelor's degree down at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, where he studied with Bart Ehrman, a figure who will come back in some of this conversation that we're having today. Uh, he went on from there to get his MDiv at Westminster Theological Seminary in California, and then his PhD with Larry Hurtado, one of the world's leading text scholars, the late Larry Hurtado, at University of Edinburgh. And since then came back, has been teaching at RTS. He's been teaching since 2002, and has just been such a resource for all of us in the area of New Testament, but particularly in the area of canon and canon development in the New Testament era. Uh, he's written extensively on this topic, uh, Canon Revisited, Question of Canon, uh, and he has a book that's actually out today. Okay, we're actually recording this April 6th, and he has a book out today called Surviving Religion 101, Letters to a Christian Student on Keeping the Faith in College. And in that book, he has a chapter dedicated to this question of canon. And he is, to me, one of the great New Testament biblical apologists uh, of our era, and it's just a real pleasure to have him on with us. Hey, Mike. Thanks, Scott. That's overly kind, and it's great to be with you guys, and I love the D.C. campus, and wish I could be there in person, but we'll do that another time, and for now, we'll just do it over Zoom, but uh, excited to be with you. Great to have you, and yeah, this isn't this isn't the way we'd like to do it, but down the road we'll get you up on campus, and everybody can get to know you, and we can uh, share some space together. <laughs> um, now, what we're going to do tonight is going to be a little different sort of layout than our typical podcast interview. So we actually want to talk about a particular topic, and that topic is the question of New Testament canon. Okay, and so Mike is going to start with a presentation dealing with misconceptions surrounding the idea of the canon, development of the canon. And then at the end of that presentation, we're going to interact on some of the issues that he brings up, sort of responding kind of in a way, it's not an academic paper, but in sort of the manner that we do academic papers when we go to these biblical conferences that we go to. So I'm looking forward to trying out this new format and, uh, and getting to discuss a topic a little more deeply maybe than we usually do um, when we're doing these interviews. With that said, let me hand it over to you, Mike. You take the lead, and then we'll come back together when you're done. Oh, well, thanks, my friend. Um, like I said, it's great to be with you guys, and for the future listeners here, excited to talk about the subject of canon. You know, it's central to the issue of the authority of Scripture, and I just want to give a, a short presentation on some misconceptions about canon, but I want to begin in a rather unusual place. Um, I actually want to begin, begin by talking about Muhammad Ali. Now, I know you're thinking, wow, what are we talking about the boxer Muhammad Ali for? But actually, I don't want to talk about Muhammad Ali the boxer, but Muhammad Ali the shepherd. So you may not know, but in 1945, there was a shepherd in Egypt by the name of Muhammad Ali who made maybe one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of the modern era. Um, outside of a little town called Nag Hammadi, he was digging in the ground with his brother for fertilizer, hit something hard, uncovered the dirt, and found an earthenware jar. And then after much debate about whether to break it open, they decided to break it open. And what they found inside was profoundly disappointing because there's little doubt that any shepherd in the 1940s in Egypt probably was hoping for treasure or gold or jewels. But what he found instead were books. Um, in fact, he found 13 codices inside of which were about 52 
individual writings or tractates. He didn't think much of it, ended up selling them off. Um, but what he didn't realize is that he had discovered what later became known as the Gnostic Gospels. Uh, this was a treasure trove of Christian writings that were very different from every other kind of Christian writing that we had known about at this time, or at least had collections of. And at the center of this was one document in particular that had caught everyone's attention and maybe has become one of the most famous books outside the Bible, and that is what's known as the Gospel of Thomas. Now, the Gospel of Thomas, as many of you may know if you've read it or know anything about it, uh, is a story of Jesus that sounds like a gospel in some senses, but has a very different Jesus than the Jesus of our canonical gospels. It's a Jesus where he's not so much saying that he's divine, but in a sense that we're divine, or at least there's a spark of divinity within us. Uh, it's a Jesus that says salvation doesn't come from outside us, but somehow comes from inside of us as we have uh, specialized knowledge and so forth. And so the Gospel of Thomas has become somewhat the darling of the academy. But more importantly than that, it's actually raised a lot of intriguing questions questions that we all have when we think about our Bibles, and that is, well, wait a second, why, why is the Gospel of Thomas not in my Bible? Uh, why is the Gospel of Thomas not in our New Testament? Why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And for that matter, why, why these 27 books at all? Why not, why not 26 or, or 28? Um, uh, what, 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 why do we think these particular books are the right ones? And so this has launched a question that we've been wrestling with ever since, and really long before 1945, of course, over why these books and no others. Uh, and of course, anybody who's thought about the New Testament and about the Bible as a whole realizes that it's not the normal kind of book we think of when we think of a book. Most books we know are written by a solitary author and basically usually in the same location and usually within a reasonable length of time. The, the New Testament, of course, is not that way at all. It's written by many different authors over a long period of time and um, in many different locations uh, and beyond that, and even in different cultural settings and different contexts. So what makes all these books unique? That is the question of canon. And so whenever we talk about that, we're getting to the nub of one of the most important questions about the authority of the Bible we deal with, which was, do we have any reason to think these are the best books or the right books that belong in our New Testaments? Now, there's a lot that can be said about the question of canon. Of course, I'm not going to be able to say it all in this little uh, short conversation. Uh, but one of the things I've noticed over the years is that even though people like to talk a lot about canon, sometimes they talk about canon in ways that's not really consistent with what we know about the early Christian movement, or what we know about early canonical history. Or to put it another way, there's a lot of misconceptions out there. And these abound. They can be in popular writings, they can be on blogs, certainly on internet articles. They even make their way into academic writings from time to time. And so I want to use this time to sort of talk about canon, uh, talk about our books, but I want to do it through the lens of, of what I consider the five biggest misconceptions out there, or at least five popular misconceptions out there, maybe is the better way to say it. Things that I hear repeated over and over again, but I think when you really probe into it, realize that these things are just not really quite accurate in the way to think about uh, canon. So what I'll do is I'll walk through these five things. I'll lay out what each of them are and then a little response to them, uh, and then we'll wrap it up. And then I look forward to uh, a discussion on these or other things related to canon with my friends there um, at the DC campus. Okay, so five things, five misconceptions about the origins of the New Testament canon. Number one, and this is number one for a reason, I might add. Uh, number one is that the authors of the New Testament did not think they were writing scripture. The authors of the New Testament did not think they were writing scripture. This is so commonly stated. It's stated in the academic world, in the popular world, and even in the evangelical world. Um, and this, this particular misconception kind of goes like this, uh, that the New Testament books were written as occasional documents. Paul was just writing letters to his friends and to other churches. And the gospel writers were just writing their recollections of Jesus, and they didn't really have any intent behind them or really any understanding of what they were doing. And then only later, uh, actually several generations later, Christians began to read these books and began to really like these books. And then in a sense said, wow, these books are so wonderful. I say that we make these books scripture. And so books that were written for one purpose were then sort of adopted and used for an entirely different purpose that's incongruent with the reason they were originally written. Or to put it another way, um, we have this idea that the, the way the books of the New Testament function now is out of accord with their original intent. Um, they were sort of, in one sense, uh, given an authority they didn't actually possess, and that it was an authority imposed on them by the later church, um, usually well into the second century and beyond, in such a way that the original authors might think, wow, I never saw that coming, and I had no idea that that's something that would happen 
to the books I had. Now, at the core of that misconception then is a really important point, which is that central to it is this idea that the authority of the books of the New Testament is something given to them. It's something infused into them, imposed on them by an ecclesiastical body or a church decision or some later event. So the books are written with one purpose, and then there's an entirely separate later purpose long after the fact imposed on those books. Now, that whole idea is the first misconception, and it's not just sort of in the internet world, it's also in the academy, and I've written about it uh, in a number of different places. But here, I just want to ask the question, is that accurate? Is it true that the New Testament writers wrote completely unaware of their own authority? I have argued in a number of places that's not the case. In fact, I've argued that the New Testament writers wrote consciously writing books that were designed to be an authoritative guide for the church, the kind of guide that bore the very authority of Christ himself. Why would we think that? Well, here's the ultimate reason, and that is because I would argue that all the New Testament books on one level or another go back to the apostles, either written directly by an apostle or books that purportedly contain direct apostolic teaching, authoritative apostolic teaching. That kind of teaching would be received as bearing the authority of Christ himself. Why would it? Because that's what the apostles were. They were the spokesmen for Jesus. They were his emissaries. They were his messengers. They were his, if you will, authorized biographers. They were designed and called to speak for him. Um, and I would argue that the apostles as a whole had a sense that that's exactly what they were doing. They were giving the church uh, its new covenant documents, its, its, its uh, revelation for the New Testament or New Covenant era. Uh, now, there's lots of examples of this in various places uh, throughout the New Testament of that apostolic self-awareness. I'll just give you one or two quick ones. A passage I like to refer to a lot is 1 Corinthians 14, verses 37 through 38, where Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he describes the authority of his own writings. And I want you to listen to this passage, because I think it may shock you when you really think about what Paul says here. This is what he says. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. And just let that sink in for a moment. Paul says, you think you're spiritual? Then you should know that what I write to you, that's the Lord's commandment. And then Paul goes on to say this. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So here's this remarkable claim. Paul is saying, basically, my words are the Lord's words. I'm his, his, his voice. I'm his mouthpiece, which is effectively just a way of saying I'm a prophet of sorts. And if you don't recognize my authority to speak for Jesus, then you're not recognized. In other words, there's a sense in which you're excluded from the true covenant community if you deny the proper role of the apostle. So Paul wrote, not at all bashful about his own authority. He wrote in such a way that he expected his words, his writings, his letters to be received with the same authority of Christ. Now, it doesn't really matter whether you call that scripture or not. It's got the highest authority one could have. So here's the implication of this, and I want this to, to settle in for a moment. This means that the authority of the New Testament books did not have to wait to some church vote or church council in, say, the third, fourth, fifth century. But if the apostles wrote with an awareness of their own authority and the church received it as such, then these books would have been written inherently from the very start with a built-in authority that did not have to wait for some later vote or later church council. And that tells you something about the canon, and that is it didn't, it, it's not imposed on books, but rose up naturally from within organically. Okay, so that's the first misconception. Let me mention a second one, and that is that early Christians disagreed widely over which books belonged in the New Testament. Now, this is a big misconception. I hear this all the time, and this is this idea that Christians were completely in disarray over what books to read, that they couldn't get along, they couldn't agree. There's one group reading this set of books, there's another group reading that set of books, and they're all over the place, and it's just sort of this literary free-for-all. Um, and this pervaded early Christianity for centuries. In fact, so much was their textual chaos that it wasn't really until the fourth century, and usually at this point under Constantine, and I'll come back to that later, where finally some degree of unity is forced on the church so that everybody's reading the same material. And so there's this impression uh, among people that Christians just couldn't agree or couldn't get along, and they had all this dispute over things. But is that true? Well, here's where I push back on the second misconception in a profound way. Um, and one of the ways I do this in a number of my different uh, writings is that I argue, and of course, I'm not the first one to do this, 
I argue that there is actually a core collection of New Testament books well-established and well in place by the middle and certainly by the late second century. What do I mean by core? What I mean by core is something like 22 out of the 27 books was pretty much well-received, well-established, and in place by the middle to late second century. That includes the four gospels, Acts, 13 letters of Paul, books like 1 Peter, 1 John, Hebrews, Revelation. Something along those lines will form approximately 22 out of the 27 books. And these were in place really early, certainly by the middle to late second century. Now, certainly when you hear that, you realize, okay, so there's about five books, usually the smaller books. You're talking Jude, James, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, where there's a level of disagreement and dispute that happened from time to time. Okay, fair enough. And that took a little while to solidify and resolve those discussions. But the core of the canon was intact and in place from a very early point, and there was really no meaningful debate or discussion about those. Here's what I want you to realize about the implications of this core canon. Here's what that means. That means that apparently the early Christians, at least as a whole and generally speaking, kind of knew what books to read without any vote from the church, without any church council. They had a core in place from a very early time. It was never voted on. It was never even discussed. People might be surprised to realize that actually when it comes to the core, there wasn't a lot of debate. We have this idea that when it comes to the Gospels, there was a debate or that there was a vote. Actually, when it comes to the Gospels, for example, there wasn't really any meaningful debate about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's a few outliers here and there, but they were established so early that you would have, wouldn't have even realized that there was any formal decision on it. In fact, I like to cite uh, my friend Chuck Hill in Orlando, who, who gives an analogy for this. He, he gives the analogy of, of going up to someone in the second century and ask them why they chose Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you were to ask someone in the second century why they chose Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they'd probably look at you like you were a strange individual. Like, what do you mean chose? We didn't choose these books. They were just there from the beginning. They were handed down to us. It'd be kind of like asking someone why they chose their parents. Uh, that wouldn't make any sense. You'd be like, well, I didn't choose my parents. They were just there from the start. That's kind of the way it was with this core canon. It was built in natural from the start. And here's the implication of that. Is that means whatever disagreements there were, there were really only a small number of books that affected. For the most part, the canon was pretty much established at an early point. And there was not the kind of wide disagreement that people say uh, there was. Okay, that leads to a third misconception about canon. Uh, and this is closely related, but this is a big one. And that misconception is this, and that is that apocryphal books are just as valid and just as true as the New Testament books. What do we mean by apocryphal books? Well, that's a word that we use to describe books that look like the books in our New Testament, but circulate around it and never made it in. A good example of this is the book I mentioned at the beginning, the Gospel of Thomas, discovered by Muhammad Ali. And here's what the misconception argues. The misconception says, hey, the, the books that we have inside our Bibles are no different than the books outside our Bibles. They're all equally valid, equally authentic, equally historical, equally uh, true, if you will. Uh, and that the only reason some were put in and some were left out was basically church politics. It was basically because the powerful proved to be victorious and the powerful won, and they suppressed and oppressed books that, that were just as valid as any other books. So this argument uh, really goes back to a person by the name of Walter Bauer, who argues that early Christianity had a bunch of different books circulating around, and you should never prejudice one book is better than another book, and they're all equally valid. There's no one book better or more orthodox and more right. They're all just as good as any others. Therefore, says Bauer, the books you have are just the accidental product of history. If you'd had another set of books in your canon, it wouldn't have been any worse or any better. So what that misconception argues is that books like the Gospel of Thomas, well, they're just as true, or at least no less true than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But is that correct? This misconception, too, I think is very misleading. It sounds really good in our modern culture to say that all books were equally valid. It sounds very platonic, very neutral, very fair. Uh, it's all about equality. No one's better or more right than another. It's very much almost a relativistic way of approaching canon. And that works as long as you don't look at the historical data. As, long as, as soon as you start looking at the historical credentials of books, you realize very quickly that they're not the same. They're very different and, and very unique. 
Now, there's a lot I could say to try to show that in this short conversation, I can't do it. I'm just going to give you one example, and that pertains to our Gospels. Is it true that the Gospel of Thomas is just as valid, just as true as our four Gospels? Is it just as historical? Uh, not at all, and there's several reasons why. Uh, one is the Gospel of Thomas is late. It's a second century Gospel written long after the Apostles have died, whereas our Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the only Gospels dated to the first century. They're the only Gospels, and just let this sink in for a moment, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the only Gospels dated to the century in which Jesus lived. Every other Gospel, including Thomas, including all the others, Gospel Peter, Gospel Philip, Gospel of Mary, all of them are dated to the second century or later, which means not only are they late, but they have no chance of actually being written by the names attached to them. They could not have been written by an apostle who was an eyewitness. But our four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, at least have a shot of having been written by someone who was actually there, or at least who was friends with someone who was actually there. Now, when you consider that, that's a big gap of difference in terms of quality. You have a chance of a first century eyewitness text or a late sort of pseudonymous second century non-eyewitness text. Which one would you pick? Suddenly you realize, wait a second, maybe they're not all the same. Maybe books are different. Or to put it a different way, maybe our gospels made it into the canon for a good reason. Maybe in some sense, they deserve to be there rather than just simply being picked by the theological victor. So the third misconception, I think, misses the mark. Okay, fourth misconception, and this is closely related to the third, but a little different, and that is that apocryphal books were as popular as the New Testament books. Okay, the prior one was that apocryphal books, Gospel of Thomas and so on, were just as valid or historical but this fourth misconception says, well, regardless of whether they were valid or historical, at least they were as popular. Isn't it true, says this misconception, that the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Peter or these other books were read and studied and copied just as much as our canonical books so that all books, once again, were all mixed together and it was only later they were separated. But again, the facts swim against this decidedly. It is not at all the case that apocryphal books were as popular as our New Testament books. In fact, Every data point we can see points in the opposite direction. All the evidence we can see suggests that the 27 books that made it in our New Testament, or at least the core of those, were very popular, very widely read, and often copied, and that what we often call apocryphal books, like the Gospel of Thomas or 3 Corinthians or Paul's pseudonymous epistle to the Laodiceans, all of these were late productions that weren't nearly as popular or well-read as the canonical ones. Now, how do we know this? How do we know whether a book was popular? Well, there's lots of ways to know. One of the ways we know is by how often a book was cited by the church fathers. When we look at citation rates, the canonical books are off the charts compared to the books that are considered apocryphal. Another way to know is by the manuscript evidence left behind. The number of manuscripts we have tells us how often a book was copied, which tells us how popular it was, how often it was read. Here's a stat for you. We have more copies of the Gospel of John from the second and third centuries than we do of all the apocryphal writings combined. Just let that sink in again. We have more copies from the, from the Gospel of John alone in the second and third centuries than all the apocryphal writings combined. That is a stunning stat that tells you that apocryphal books were not as popular as the New Testament books, which tells you again, Christians seem to know exactly what books to read and study. And that leads us to a fifth and final misconception, which uh, this is my favorite, and I saved the, the best for last here, and I hear this all the time, and of course, this has even made it into fictional books and movies, and that is this idea that the New Testament was decided by Constantine at the Council of Nicaea. I can't tell you how often I hear this. It even made it into the popular fictional book, The Da Vinci Code, and it's still circulated, and even in, in modern scholars, sometimes you hear them say that in some sense, the canon was decided at Nicaea by the Emperor Constantine. Now, there's something very attractive about that theory in our modern world because it, our modern world loves conspiracy theories and they love the idea that, well, the way things are is because some politics forced someone's hand and it's really the powerful people who rule the world. And of course, Constantine just forced his way into things and, and, and had his say. And it all sounds very uh, plausible in our modern ears. Um, but when you look at the historical data, again, this particular misconception is shown for what it is, namely a grand misconception. There's several things mistaken about it. For one, the Council of Nicaea didn't have anything to do with the New Testament canon. The Council of Nicaea, as many people know, 
uh, was the council that was deciding uh, how to best articulate the divinity of Jesus. Now, by the way, it didn't decide the divinity of Jesus. It was talking about how to best articulate the divinity of Jesus over and against um, some various views out there. And so we have the beautiful Nicene Creed, but you can notice that there's nothing there about the New Testament canon. So in one sense, there's already a mistake there, but there's also this mistake that Constantine somehow picked books or decided books, but we already know that's false from our prior point. Remember, there was already a functional canon, a core canon, 22 out of 27 books by the middle of the second century. So if that's the case, then how could Constantine have picked a canon in the fourth century? There was already a canon for 200 years by the time Constantine had a chance to supposedly pick books. And by the way, there's no way he had the power to decide this. This was already well-established in the churches across the empire. What Constantine did was simply affirm what had already been the case and probably already been the case for generations. But once again, conspiracy theories sometimes prove to be more attractive uh, and more interesting than the truth. Um, and I get that and I understand that in our modern day, but our job is to try to whittle back to what really happened and what the evidence suggests happened. And the evidence suggests that it was not decided uh, by Constantine uh, in the fourth century. Okay, so where's that leave us? That leaves us, I think, uh, with, a, with a very decided uh, sort of scenario here. And that is, despite all these misconceptions that are circulating around, there is still a very good reason to think that the canon was well-established at an early point. And what's the payoff of that? Here's the payoff. And then I'm gonna open up to my friends for discussion. Uh, the payoff is that that means the theological trajectory of Christianity was decided from a very early point. Think about it for a moment. Regardless of what the church would have quote unquote decided about second Peter or third John, would that really have changed the theological direction of the early Christian movement? Well, there's no reason to think so, given that you already have the four Gospels, the 13 epistles of Paul, and a handful of other books to boot. In other words, all the, the, the hubbub about canon really wouldn't have decided anything any differently in terms of who Christ is, what salvation is, and what the truth is. And I think that's a reassuring fact for us. Uh, God and his providence seem to rally his people around these books by the power of the Holy Spirit at a very early point. So that trajectory was set, and that trajectory has stayed in place uh, we would argue at least for two millennia. Okay, I'm going to pass it back to my, my friends here, and we'll have an open, fun discussion about misconceptions uh, of the New Testament canon. Thanks, Mike. That's that's super helpful. I love the breakdown of five misconceptions, and you're right. The fifth one is the one that, that I hear too, and I still, I still have a hard time yielding it because it's one of those ones that's so clearly kind of historically false uh, that Constantine came up with all of this back in Nicaea, but it is interesting how popular it is, and that's probably because of its adoption into uh, the Vinci Code and elsewhere. I remember hearing you talk about the development of canon years ago when I was on faculty in Orlando, and you came down and gave a lecture, and you, you're using the language of ontological canon. Do you still use that language in terms of talking about canon as something, I mean, it's now I can hear it between the lines of, of the misconceptions. Um, do you still use that kind of language? I do. Um, so you're, I think you, you were there for the Kistemacher lectures, if I'm remembering correctly. I think correctly. that's right, yeah. Um, yeah, one of my lectures was on the definition of canon. Like what, what, what counts as canon? What, when do you have one? Yeah. I, argue, I argue there that there's three different definitions that all intersect with each other. But one of those is what I call the ontological definition of canon. In other words, we have to realize that canon can be looked at from the human perspective in terms of reception. When you receive these books, you have a canon. Right. But isn't it possible also to look at canon from the perspective of God giving the books? I mean, isn't it true that as soon as God gave them, you have a canon, even if no yeah. one's recognized them? I mean, think about it. Right after God had given the 27th book, isn't it true that you have a complete canon, even if no one even knows it yet? Um, and I make that point just to simply remind people that ultimately God decides the canon. We recognize the canon. So there is a sense in which you can talk about canon ontologically. I just threw that word out there because I think it's, you know, it's a word well, we use, obviously, in Trinitarian discussions, but I think it captures the essence of canon or the what is canon in and of itself. Uh, answer the books God gave. Mm -hmm. So and so my point was, let's stop talking about canon only as reception. Let's talk about canon also as God giving. And then they, they, they meet together. Well, and it's linked so nicely with self-attestation of scripture and, and seeing canon as more than just a historical process. And I think now here's this is a whole this is what I'm building up to. I think, did you use the analogy of the archaeological site where the archaeologist is clearing away the dirt 
from the, from the, the building. And no one would say that the archaeologists created the building, right? You, you're clear, and, and that, that process during which, even with those disputable books, that the church is coming down on, okay, what do we think about Jude? And what do we think about Hebrews or something? You know, that with those books, it's more of a settling in on what is already there ontologically, right? I mean, it's kind of a theological statement. It may not be the most convincing apologetic statement, but I think it's still a healthy paradigm. Um, but that idea of sort of clearing away what wasn't of value and discerning as a church what was God's word. Now, they're not they're not choosing it, as you said, but they're discerning it, yeah. what it is. They're uncovering the thing. You know, no, I, idea I like that. I don't, I don't know if I use that. I don't remember using that. I've used a similar analogy when it comes to what happened in the Reformation. I, I argue that the Reformers were excavators, not innovators. So mm -hmm. excavators are those who uncover something that was already there, yeah. not innovating it. And I think yeah. you could say that about the Reformers, but you could also say that about the canon, right? right? The church was not innovating it. They weren't creating it. They were, they were uncovering it or excavating it. And so I think your analogy is a great one. I don't want to take credit for it. I don't remember using it. Of course, I don't remember what I said yesterday. So I remember what yeah, I said. Yeah, well, it's in. one of those things that I, I think I've accredited to you. So uh, I'll take you, it. <laughs> okay. Better than crediting a bad analogy to me. Don't it may have been Chuck Hill, too. That so, was a good one. Chuck probably used it. He's, he's yeah, a genius down there. But, it, but yeah, it's a good, great good analogy. I, I was thinking of that as you're talking about the first misconception, though, and, and the authors knowing that they're writing script. Yeah. And, and being cognizant of the fact that these aren't just aren't just casual epistolaries, you know, that that someone is listening in on as a third person, but these are meant right. as word of God. Yeah, as if Paul would be shocked. Wow, what yeah. did you guys do with my letters? I just was writing to my friend Philemon, you know, what what are you doing? You know, or something. Right. You know? Yeah, I kind of, I, I latched onto that too, with your first kind of myth here with, with canon, and I wanted to kind of follow up on it, because th there is a very provable authority with which Paul is kind of approaching the Galatians or Timothy or, you know, whoever it might be. Um, and that authority concept is certainly ingrained in what we think of as canon. To be canonical, it must have this unique, even God-given authority. But my head went to James Barr and, you know, and he kind of isolates two things that have to be necessary for something to be canonical. One, it has to have authority, but two, canon implies closed, right? That there is this set of books and it's only those set of books that have this unique, this special, this, this God-given authority. And I wonder if you could speak to that. You know, yes, I think we can pretty clearly establish even, even with, and I want to ask you about this, but even with some of the kind of like fringe books like Jude or, or second Peter or something like that, uh, that are that are sometimes disputed. I think we can establish in each book that the author is writing with this understanding of authority, even divine authority. But how do we establish from Scripture itself that there is a close, that there is a a terminus, that it's only these books that have this unique yeah. kind of authority? Yeah, so the, the, the argument that Barr makes is also an argument that Sundberg makes and also an argument that Craig Allert makes and several others make, where they make a distinction between scripture on the one hand and canon on the other. And so the way you described it is the same, which is there's authority, but then there's canon. And they, they would just substitute the word scripture for authority and say, okay, fine, you could have scripture, but you don't have canon. Now, I argue against that at a number of levels in various other writings in terms of the definition of canon. Uh, I think the demarcation in scripture and canon is, is, is forced, um, and others have made the same uh, argument, and Ian, uh, Ian Proven has made the same argument, which is scripture itself implies some restriction. Like, as soon as you say uh, one book is scripture, you're, you're, you're presumably saying it's scripture and other books aren't. There's, there's already built into the concept of scripture that there's a limitation to the books that are or aren't scripture. You have some sense in your head of some boundaries. So he says the idea of some exclusion isn't doesn't have to wait for canon that it's even built into the concept of scripture and so i don't make a sharp distinction between scripture and canon if someone says well how do you know the scripture is closed uh, there's 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 two ways i argue for that in my my book one is 
Um, the only books that have a possibility of being in the canon by, vir by virtue of our theological model is a book that's apostolic. So as soon as you get to a point where someone writes a book and they're clearly outside the apostolic orbit, you're, it's, it, it's, it's closed in principle. So if someone says, hey, my pastor wrote a great letter the other day to our congregation, let's stick that in as the 28th book of the canon. Well, I would say it's closed in principle because he's not an apostle and the apostolic age is over and they're all dead. So there's a sense in which the apostles themselves as a contained unit are the inherent closing of the canon. You can't get outside that apostolic world. The other thing that I think closes the canon is just the, the, the consensus of the church. The church has rallied around these books in a way that, that in one sense is a, is a, is a sense that we're, we're recognized these books, not, not by voting on them, but by broad consensus that these are the ones. And unless there's some strange new discovery, which of course everyone hypothesizes, what if you discovered a new epistle of Paul, then you have a closed canon. Um, so I don't think it needs to be closed by an act. Um, I think it's closed by, uh, by uh, the apostolic principle. Yeah, can, uh, that's great. That's really helpful. Can you like flesh out uh, for me, for me, <laughs> like the apostolic principle here? Um, yeah. Because, and maybe that's a good way of kind of handling these peripheral books because, you know, obviously James, Jude, and Paul, you know, to some extent, not a, one of the 12. But, yep. but then called apostles in, in various parts. Acts calls James an apostle. But when did sure. that happen? Um, and, but Jude is not listed as an apostle. We don't know. Uh, maybe you can tell me your opinion on the uh, author of Hebrews. I'd be delighted to, to, oh, to know I've that. I've solved that problem in case you're wondering. Oh, good, yeah, good, so, good. Hey, we should have been talking about that. Time. Oh, well, this is going to go viral then. This is going to be an amazing podcast. Yeah, and, it sure will. And then, of course, Luke and Mark. So, like, in what sense are they apostolic? Yeah. So, I make the argument in Canterbury Revisited, and of course, I'm not the first one to make this, but I try to nuance a little bit. Um, you know, apostolic, what makes a book apostolic is apostolic content, authoritative apostolic content, which you can get in multiple ways. I mean, the most obvious way you get apostolic content is if the guy holding the pen, so to speak, is the apostle, right? He writes the letter. Uh, but you can also get apostolic content if you have a reasonable sense in which the, the depository uh, of content in that letter comes directly from an apostle. So you look at someone like Luke, who in his prologue makes it very plain that it was the eyewitnesses and ministers of the word that he was learning from as he wrote his gospel. Um, and so what you have in Luke is an, is an apostolic deposit. And, and it's a direct apostolic deposit. It's not someone in the eighth century say, oh, I got an apostolic deposit. You have something that's direct. So from what we can tell, the definition of apostolic would be apostolic content in which you can achieve in multiple ways. And I think that includes all 27 books on one level or another. Of course, most of those are written by apostles directly. But then, of course, Luke, I've already mentioned, Mark is in a similar position. Hebrews, too. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. I don't, of course, have the answer. I was joking. I think that goes without saying. But you know, I, I, my view is that Origen was right in the sense that God only knows who wrote Hebrews, but the author of Hebrews in, in, in Hebrews 2 positions himself very much like Luke, which is that basically, you know, we've got this from the eyewitnesses and those who uh, had their uh, ministry attested through signs and wonders. So he, he attributes his, effectually his content to, to the apostolic orbit too. You mentioned James, of course, he was called an apostle, and we don't know the extent of the apostles. Obviously, there's original 12, but it seems to be a little bigger than that. So he may have been regarded as an apostle. So when the dust settles, I think you're dealing with, with apostolic content across all 27. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. I really like the, the Hebrews 2 nod. I think that's really a, and, and of course, you've got obviously Hebrews 13, where you bring in the Timothy orbit there. Exactly, which, um, is, which is the way I argue is, the, the way you could ask the question is, is this book positioned to get direct apostolic content? Um, historically. And I think Hebrews is clearly that, like Luke. And of course, this is why some people think Luke wrote Hebrews, right? David Allen's book. I don't necessarily think so, but I think that the positioning of the two is remarkably similar. Uh, I have to say, Mike, that your five misconceptions were, were so helpful. And in fact, uh, you know, given right around this time of the year, you know, this is uh, a few days after the uh, Easter season and yeah. the media is, you know, generally goes nuts with all sorts of uh, uh, documentaries on like National Geographic about things like the formation of the canon, the historical Jesus and, and things of this nature, which is really challenging for God's people. You know, they're watching these things and they are and, and these things are really in a way kind of puts uh, uh, Christians in a crisis mode to a certain extent especially when it comes to our doctrine of scripture. So to hear 
these five misconceptions is, I mean, it's great. And I'm excited to uh, share this with uh, people around us so that they can kind of be disabused by some of the misconceptions and, and things that they, and there's a, there is a rational confidence and a reasonableness for the confidence that we have in the nature of our scripture. So that, that was great. I loved it. I, I did have a question about, about my old teacher, Meredith Klein. Uh, as you know, he had a certain theory. In mine. About, uh, yes, and yours as well. <laughs> Our old teacher, Meredith Klein, good old Dr. Klein, who, uh, as you know, had a had a theory about Old Testament canon formation. Yeah, yeah. In his uh, book on the structure of biblical authority, and he uh, he never applies the the principle into the New Testament canon, but he and I can't recall if he actually says it as much in his book. But I know that he has said as much in lecture in classes where he said the principle of what he was trying to talk about does work with New Testament canon. The theory, as, re, as you know, was that the Old Testament canon formation was based on, on the literary structure of the covenant, uh, yeah. particularly the old Susan Vassal Treaty. And then he had a sixfold division uh, of how those old treaty documents were organized. He says that the Old Testament canon really is just one large covenant and and that intrinsically behind canon is covenant and and then you know yeah. each book of scripture then it contributes to one aspect of the covenant uh, structure there i don't know i don't think we've ever talked about it so i'm curious do you think what do you think there's any validity to his theory there and do you see that within the new testament canon as well yeah thank you i 100 think there's validity to it in fact in my book the question of canon i have maybe half a chapter on this exact theme, which is what I argue for in one of the chapters there is that canon uh, in the New Testament would have organically and naturally flowed out of the old covenant context. Um, and that we would have not, we should not be surprised to have new covenant documents. And part of my argument is Klein's very argument, the one you just beautifully laid out there. I think you summarized it wonderfully. And what I argue, I focus on there's lots, you mentioned lots of different features about the, the A&E uh, uh, and Vassal treaties, which are typically mostly examples Klein gives are Hittite treaties, which I think are perfectly fine because most of the, it looks like most of the parallels in our, in our covenant structure mirror the Hittite treaties. But one of the things I point out is that in the A&E world, covenants were written documents. In other words, covenants were physical objects. You could, you could, you could hold it in your hand because um, it was a written text. And one of the things, as you recall, is that you have two copies, right? One for one party and one for the other party. And so I argue that in the, in the water that was being sort of drunk, so to speak, in the ancient Israelite world, when you said God makes a covenant, you mean eventually that there's going to be a written text, that, that, that one follows from the other. There's not just pie in the sky idea of a covenant. It's actually something that's written. Why does that matter for the new? I argue in my book that they would have expected new covenant documents. In other words, no one would have been shocked for, for, to have a New Testament. A New Testament would have flown right out of the fact that Jesus says, I've inaugurated a new covenant. And as soon as Jesus says, I've come to bring a new covenant, everyone's like, okay, well, then there's going to be new covenant documents because you don't have a covenant without documents. And so of all the features of the a &E treaties, the one I hone in on is the written fact that they're written down. And I think that really gives you a wonderful picture of the way uh, you would have expected a New Testament text. Now, there's other parallels. What Klein does do, and he does this in Structure of Biblical Authority, and he does this actually in a WTJ article too, is he actually goes through several New Testament books and shows what function they would have, right, in the covenant, you know. So the epistles would be covenant prosecution, right? The gospels would be the covenant foundation documents like Exodus. And then, of course, Revelation has the covenant curse at the end, you know, neither add or take away, any sort of echo of, of the Deuteronomy um, uh, prohibition. So, yeah. 100% with you. Uh, I've, I've tried to go down that path. You can read it and tell me if you think I did a good good job on it, um, but uh, I'm with you on it. Yeah, that, that documentary curse at the end of Revelation, uh, do, do you read that just to apply to Revelation or to the entirety of the New Testament canon? So I think it's both. Um, I think when it was written, um, I don't know that John knew he was writing the last book of the New Testament canon. Uh, maybe God revealed that to him. I don't uh, you know, we won't know that, but, um, but I think you could see how providentially where Revelation sits, it functions both as a covenantal curse for the words of the, of the text, and then also de facto as a covenantal curse for the entire corpus, just by, by virtue of where it sits. So in other words, it's covenantal placement 
expands the implications of that phrase, okay. um, which you would not have picked up on initially, perhaps. But as soon as you realize this covenantal placement at the end of the doc, at the end of the, the New Testament corpus, you would say, "Oh, wait, you know, this is a clear echo," and and it would begin to to show implications for the whole corpus. Yeah, that's terrific. I, I remember. I think it was Dr. Klein who talked about that covenant clause, the documentary curse clause as being embedded within them. The document itself is already a sense of authority because there's a warning there. It always establishes authority because there's a warning. And I always thought that was sort of intriguing that he uh, he went to, it is divine revelation. That's why it's authoritative, but it's already embedded in the document structure itself because they have that clause. Yeah, you might be interested to know that I wrote an article on the neither adding nor taking away phraseology, which, of course, we're talking about at the end of Revelation, right. but that I argue is popping up all over the place in early patristic literature, too. And it's, it's sort of an embedded sort of concept within early Christianity. Um, it's in an Oxford volume that Chuck Hill and I co-edited, and so I can point that out to you at some point if you want to read some of the little things I uncovered, because I, I, I make the same case there, which is that that's not just in Revelation and Deuteronomy. It's kind of all over the place. Yeah, that, that sounds great. I wonder if you see a relationship with that. I, I have like six questions in the queue, but then I feel like this is the one that needs to be asked right now. Um, I wonder if there's a relationship with that, that kind of do not add language and the refrain of Paul, which actually occurs a couple of times, like the delivered yes. and received. Oh, okay. I've never made the parallel there. Paul does echo "Do not add, take away" in Galatians. Interesting. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the uh, having delivered and received. I, I wonder if there's a parallel there. That'd be interesting. Sort of the delivered and received could imply some sort of. Now that you've received it, it's static and not to be altered yeah. or changed. Huh? Because that is the classic sort of passing down tradition. What has been passed down to me, I now uh, deliver to you. Um, we see that First Corinthians fifteen. We see that all over his writings. Um, actually, Luke echoes that too in his um, his writings. So yeah, I, I even in his prologue, the, the, mm -hmm. the idea of receiving yeah. this from the eyewitnesses yeah. and Hebrews too. You know. Yeah, that's exactly right. But the question I really wanted to ask was this two yeah. coffees thing because I was really interested in that that I, I, I never I hadn't read that aspect of Klein that you would have these two copies produced and uh, you know as I'm sure you know like you know a lot of work is being done on you know, how the, the, the way in which Paul in particular might have produced his letters. And there's a lot of speculation and it's grounded, some of, some of which is grounded in second Timothy four, where Paul says to, to Timothy, bring me my documents mm -hmm. that maybe, that maybe Paul produced two letters, you know, that he sent one and he kept one. He had a, kind oh, of a, car yeah. a, a carbon copy. Yep. Um, can we read theological significance into that? Is that is that maybe some of that covenant? Oh, framework? interesting. Okay, so well, first of all, let me just say I think Paul did make copies of his own letters. I think we get that from not just a few uh, shadowy statements in Paul. I mean, there's the there's the Second Timothy four or five passage about uh, bring me the, the the books and the writings, or the books and the membranes, or the or the parchments, literally there. And I've written a number of places about that. It looks like he's got two kinds of writings in, in mind, the Biblia, which probably is Old Testament. And then he mentions these, these parchments, which maybe are copies of his own letters. And it could be other New Testament writings too. But I think he made copies of his own letters because that's just what you did in the ancient world if you had a scribe. I mean, I, I think we can reasonably assume because Paul uses the standard Greco-Roman letter structures that he probably followed normal scribal conventions, which is that as soon as you write a letter, you make a copy before you send it. Yeah, yeah. And people have hypothesized that explains the supposed lost letters of Paul, that uh, maybe the lost letters of Paul are just the ones he never got a chance to make a copy of. And that the, the, the corpus we have just happens to be the, 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 the ones he had his own copy of. So they're, they're arguably Paul's own copies that form the corpus of 13 letters. So I think you're right on track there. As, whether that's a, an example of Klein's thing is another interesting angle. I have never thought of that. So you could argue that Paul represents God, so to speak, in his copy, and that the church represents the recipients of the covenants, and therefore they have their copy. I'm assuming that's where you're going with that. Um, I'm, I'm and, making no claims. I'm okay, asking well, questions only. Well, obviously, in the old covenant, you know, God's copy was in the temple, and there's no equivalent. So theoretically, Paul has a copy or something like that. I don't know. I think that's intriguing. I, I don't know, of course, how far to run with that, but it's, it's an intriguing observation. 
if you could uh, establish a certain level of a covenant lawsuit behind Paul's writings that might support the idea of copies. I mean, that was the rationale behind the uh, the copies is uh, the, the lawsuit genre and and the covenant substructure as behind the lawsuit genre, at least according to Dr. Klein. And so, yeah, I think the, the lawsuit sort of category is the right one. You know, there's an interesting Tyndall Bulletin article years ago. I forget the author right now that he makes an argument of Paul's covenantal sort of lawsuit structure built into his letters, which I think is really helpful. And I, I think he must either know Klein, uh, know Klein's work or, or been influenced by people who've been influenced by Klein. I do have a, uh, a quasi pastoral question, Mike, as I know yeah. uh, you, you do pastoral work kind of on the side in addition to uh, the incredible other things that you do uh, for the Evangelical Theological Society, even as well as, uh, as a seminary. But Okay, I, I live in Maryland, and Maryland has a very large Roman Catholic con uh, contingency, and um, and you know it was the only one of the original colonies, as you know, that was originally a haven for Roman Catholics, and you still see the effects of that here. Very oh, large historic uh, Roman Catholic churches in in the area, but the divide between uh, Protestant evangelicalism and Roman Catholicism, at least at the popular level, is a very very fine line. They they seem to see each other more just as you know, extensions of a of one church in, in many ways. Uh, one area, of course, of disagreement is going to be in the area of uh, scripture, particularly the deuterocanonical books that we don't embrace, as you know, as yeah. uh, inspired or infallible or, or the word of God in any way. For Protestants who, at least be in my area here, who are, who are very exposed to Roman Catholic churches, and generally within Protestant schools where we are so, uh, we just don't know those, De Deuteronom those Deuterocanonical books, is, is there any value, I guess I would say, to, to, for us as Protestants to be aware of them? What is that value and that gain? Oh, tremendous value. And I think that you could argue, and maybe this is where you're going, that Protestants have, have maybe given short attention to those books just because they don't want to consider them scripture and therefore haven't paid attention to them. But they do fill in tremendous gaps for us in the what we might call the intertestamental time period in terms of what was going on with Judaism and what we would call Second Temple Judaism for the most part during that time period. What people valued is obviously there's significance in terms of what political environment was created by the Maccabean revolt for Jesus and for his time and what that meant for messianic expectations and so on. So I think it's tremendously valuable. And I think one could argue that we haven't paid enough attention to them as historical documents. Um, obviously, that's a separate question of whether we should receive them as scripture. We, that, the Protestants have decided that, but I think they give more attention to them. Now, on that same score, I argue the same for apocryphal material in the New Testament. So if those are the Old Testament apocryphal material, we, we have, of course, counterparts in the New Testament apocryphal material that I think Christians could give more attention to and just learn from. Obviously, not received as scripture, but they do tell you about early Christianity and about what they valued and what things were going on. And even things we don't typically consider apocrypha, but still non-canonical work, Shepherd of Hermas, First and Second Clement, Didache, number of the Apostolic Fathers would be classic examples of this. But then I think even other apocryphal writings circulating that tell us about what Christians wanted to talk about and valued. I think the apocryphal acts are interesting, not because they're historically reliable, they're kind of weird and strange, but they tell you apocryphal, our Christians were interested in sort of missions work and evangelism and proclamation and so on. So it's, it's interesting. I think you can learn a lot from those things. Sometimes even in the differences, right, that like you mentioned at the beginning, the Gospel of Thomas, and, you know, there's no action in the Gospel of Thomas. There's no, it's all yeah. sayings material, right? It, it's all about, you know, personal application of Jesus's words. And, and so you don't get that historical emphasis that's there no, in the no. traditional gospels. Yeah, Gnostics, interestingly, were less concerned about the historical Jesus and more ex concerned about the current existential experience with Christianity, yeah. uh, which tells you a lot about our modern world, by the way. Modern spiritualists want to talk about your encounter with God now, not back then. Gnostics, assuming for the moment Thomas was Gnostic, which I know is disputed, Gnostics were, 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 were that way. Um, here's the other interesting thing about Thomas and other apocryphal gospels. They cared very little for the Old Testament narrative. They didn't, they didn't try to place Jesus within it. They didn't try to show that Jesus was completing the Old Testament story. They, it was almost like the story of Jesus just popped into existence out of thin air. And that's a radical difference with our canonical gospels. Our canonical gospels are really, really intent on placing Jesus within the Old Testament narrative. 
And you can already tell right out of the gate, there's something different here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, even in the, the, the idea of history at all, history is ancillary to the Gnostic gospels. It, it's, it's, it's not, yeah, it so they matter. reject all, all history on one level. You're right. But then in particular, it's just like, but how do you neglect the, the old Testament history leading up to the, yeah. to the Messiah? They just say, well, I guess it just doesn't matter. So, and I think that's one of the things that led the Orthodox to, to, to gospels like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that they know, they knew that you can't tell the story of Jesus without the story of the old Testament the story of Jesus is the end of the story of the old Testament. It's the finishing of it. And so when they're looking for gospels to pick, so to speak, I use the word pick as if they picked, but if they're looking for gospels. They're looking for ones that, that do that. And the apocryphal gospels were not those. I have, I have to say that that's so reassuring how you just articulated how almost how obvious it is as you read the canonical new Testament books with the non-canonical new Testament book. It's just, how it just kind of hits you in the face as clear as day, the distinction between the two and which oh, yeah. is and which are not. I mean, I guess that's one of the things I think a lot of people might be really um, uh, not clear because they're not familiar with, well, they're not familiar with the New Testament, much less the non Well, I make Testament that point all the time. So. You know, a lot of time when I go on lectures, I lecture at these different college groups and RUF groups and universities. And I actually have a point in one of my lectures where I say, okay, all of you out there who've read the gospel of Peter, raise your hand. And I do that on purpose to try, because I'm comparing the gospel of Peter to the canonical gospels. And I'm like, I want them to realize that whatever they think about apocryphal gospels and their validity or non-validity, most of them have never read them. And so there's this weird realization I think people come to is like, I'm, I'm making these decisions. I've never even read the thing. And I think what you're pointing out, Peter, which is that if you read it, you do realize there's a qualitative and, and discernible difference between them. And, and most people just haven't read them. And as you point, most people even haven't, haven't even read the canonical gospels, not to mention apocryphal ones. And on that note, it's probably worth, you know, talking just a little bit about the fact that in the popular mindset, the Gnostic Gospels are so pro, pro women, and they are not. <laughs> you know, for somebody who reads them, they they are they're very much not. That's very much not the case. No, actually, I've I've written on this too, which is, and I think you're actually right. There's this weird narrative that well, it's it, that, that that Gnostic Gospels are pro women, and they're not. They also, there's this narrative that Gnostic Gospels are inclusive, and they're not, and this idea that they're for the common man, and they're not. The, the, the Gnostics were remarkably exclusive and elitist, and they were very condescending and derogatory towards women. You know, what's interesting is it was the canonical Gospels and the sort of traditional great church Christian movement were the most inclusive in all the right ways. When I say inclusive, I don't mean in the modern way people use the term, but inclusive in the sense that, that, that Christianity is literally for everyone. It, the gospel is for everyone, Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free. That was not the Gnostics. And so how they became the darling of the academy is a mystery because they're a mess. And as you noted, they're not pro-women. And if you just look at the last Logion and Gospel of Thomas, that, that, that alone just tells you that there's weird macro patriarchal things floating around in the Gnostic movement that no one wants to talk about. All right, so it raises a question about pseudonymity, which... I, I realize in the Old Testament is a different kind of issue than the issue that you're dealing with in the New Testament. But to what extent, uh, I mean, when we're talking about Thomas, for instance, and of course these are written late and they're coming, they're, they're coming to us from a very late era, as you mentioned, these aren't first century writings. How do we respond to the counterclaim then that, well, how can you trust in the authorial claims of these New Testament? Or in, yeah, in other words, there's a side of that that shows up in the Old Testament, too, where there's this or in Old Testament studies where people will say things like, well, you have to understand in ancient literature, authorship didn't mean the same thing it means today. You'll kind of hear that. Like if you read a book today written by Mike Kruger, you expect it to be written by Mike Kruger. But back yeah. then, they didn't really have the same sense of authorship. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that that doesn't, you know, you're the OT guys. I'm going to let you and Peter handle that. But on the NT side, that's simply not true. Authorship mattered. Authorship mattered a lot. If you found out a book was pseudonymous, you rejected it. Some of the biggest complaints in the disputes over Second Peter were that people thought the guy who wrote it wasn't Peter. If, if it didn't matter whether Peter was the author, they wouldn't have had all the problems with Second Peter building up to, to its final acceptance. So the idea that pseudonymity was an accepted sort of authorial uh, technique or practice doesn't work at all. Now, to your other question, which is, well, how can we be so sure about the authorship of these books? You know, when it comes to the Gospels, for example, those are, those are considered that the names have nothing to do with who really wrote them. 
obviously in this conversation, we can't fully unpack why we think the authors are the authors. But what I quickly say to my students is, well, look, there's two things you could look at that point to the traditional authors. One is patristic testimony. Church fathers routinely point to these four as the authors. And I'm like, they have a better shot of knowing than I do. You know, who, who's most likely to know that who wrote John, you know, Irenaeus or Bart Ehrman? I mean, here's the, the reality is Irenaeus is only one person removed from John. He got his information from Polycarp, who knew John personally. Yeah. What's the chance of Irenaeus getting that wrong? I mean, yeah. it's possible. Lots of things are possible, but it's, but it's not probable. It's not historically likely. And so if you look at that, and then, you know, Ehrman comes along and says, well, John didn't write John. I'm like, yeah, I think I'm going with Irenaeus on that one. Okay, so that's one, that's one argument. And then the other argument is the gospel titles. And again, great work has been done, how early they were, how uniform they were, how consistent they are across all the manuscript evidence that suggests time and time again that the, the titles must have been there from the start, or at least very soon thereafter, which means they most likely reflect real authorial connections. They're not just made up. Um, they're not second century. Um, and so I think those two pieces of evidence are pretty powerful. And then, of course, you can look at the books themselves. They sound like first century Jews. They, they're familiar with Palestine. And I think the evidence is pretty good there also. Yeah, and there seems to even be a movement in academia. Of, at least I've seen some of it in the Old Testament circles and, and a bit more New Testament, perhaps. But I mean, my area is obviously Old Testament. I'm kind of pointing out that like pseudonymity for the purpose of deceiving, which is what you'd have to say is what's going on. This is meant to be deceptive are very right. early you've got other people saying that these are written by folks they're not written by that there's really not a lot of evidence of that happening you know in, in the cultures that we're talking about i mean if you go back and look at if you look at jeremiah for instance you've got a passage where jeremiah sit, can't go to the temple so he sends baruch with a scroll uh jeremiah 36 and and the the guards there say did you write this baruch or did jeremiah you know, and he says, oh, don't worry, Jeremiah wrote it, I dictate. And they're like, okay, let him in. You know, and the assumption there being that it wasn't just kind of okay to let somebody's, somebody's follower write, you know, you know, or, or just, let me, let me say, like, write as if it was them, but not actually, you know, but lie about who the author was, something like that. I mean, even there in that very early, this is a pre-exilic setting, you have this idea of authorship. And it's kind of like the kind of authorship we talk about today. You know, Jeremiah. Yeah, I think that's 100% right. Wrote the scroll. And you have Paul saying things like, I'm writing this in my own hand, you know, Second Thessalonians. It seems as if some, they're, they're, they're going out of their way to highlight the authorial claim. Yeah, and we've got places in the early church where when, when people are discovered for having fabricated stories, they're, they're, they're condemned. I mean, the famous example, of course, is Tertullian discovering the forger of the Acts of Paul and Thecla, who is a presbyter who came forward and came forward and confessed. I, I did. I forged the Acts of Paul and I'm, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to or not didn't mean to, but I didn't mean to upset anybody. And, you know, Tertullian said, sorry, you know, that's not acceptable. And so it's, it's clear that, that they had a sense that you didn't do that. And, and there's even a stringency about enforcing. It. I mean, even like I said, in the Jeremiah case, too, you know, there's this kind of stringency like we need to question them under some kind of penalty. You know? And I know there's not a lot of evidence, but you get these little glimpses kind of in how the sausage gets made. And, and it's, yeah, but, it's but the evidence, does, you're exactly right, but the evidence doesn't go in the opposite direction. That's right. I mean, it, right. that's the key, right? So it, it, even if we don't have as many pieces pointing towards the condemnation, that, that's the only pieces we do have. We don't have anybody saying, oh, it's totally fine, don't worry about it. That's yeah. like non-existent. Well, and it hints at a certain, I think, chronological ignorance where people assume, well, they're ancient, and so they're primitive and don't have the yeah. same notions we have, and it's kind of accepted out of hand. But, you know, you see these things show up to, to highlight your book, you know, that just came out. You, you see this show up in the Religion 101 class in the undergrad. You know, I've, I've had the privilege of working with a lot of Muslim background Christians, and I can remember one time sitting in Malta with, with a class, and, and we were watching this kind of famed Muslim apologist, anti-Christian apologist on TV. And, and I, have, I have no idea what he's saying because my Arabic's nowhere near that good. And then suddenly in the middle of the interview, he holds up, you know, Bart Ehrman's misquoting Jesus. You know? <laughs> and suddenly I'm like, I think they know what he's arguing for now. You know, but they love it, Ehrman over there. They, really they love do. him. And that second, you know, that second misconception that you point out about there being all of these other belief systems, this is basically the Muslim view of Christianity. There are all these different theologies, and the, the true one, which in the, by their lights is often Arianism, you know, mm -hmm. the true one was actually weeded out in the, in the 
false one was was continued. So it's not just in the American Academy. You, know, you see this show up in Muslim Christian dialogue as well. Well, thank you again, Mike, for having us. This has been the, the most useful and helpful conversation. And we just appreciate your work on this. I appreciate your conversation. Look forward to having you back on in the future to talk about your book that just came out and uh, and all of the other things that you're involved in. But thanks again for your work down there in Charlotte as well. It's great to have you this week. Thanks, Scott. Great to be with all of you guys. Love the DC campus and uh, let's do it again. Excellent. Well, for everyone else, pick up Surviving Religion 101 by Michael Kruger. Uh, just came out this week, the week of April 6th. Um, and take a look at that, and you can read further on his writing on canon. We'll put those in the book notes. And we look forward to being back with you all next week. Until then, 